0: All right. My name is Jacob Stott. I've been a member here for about two years, and I'm going to read the scripture today. We're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 10. So if you turn there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. God, we come to you in praise and thanksgiving, Lord. How great you are. How awesome it is that we get a taste of glory, Lord, praising you together, singing these songs with each other, Lord, growing in holiness, growing to be more like your son together, pointing each other to the cross and to Christ, Lord. What a gift that is. I pray we would not squander it now, Lord, that we would not be distracted by things of the world, by things that we have later on, Lord, but we would be able in this time to focus on your word, to focus on truth, to grow in your might, Lord, that we would find refuge in you from everything in this world, Lord, knowing that how much greater you are, that although we feel pain and sorrow, that we may be coming in today not feeling joyful, not feeling like we know you. Lord, I pray that in this time that we would draw close to you, that we would draw near to you, that we would find you and see you, Lord. You are the greatest, You are all in all. Lord, I pray for Larry as he comes to expand the scriptures, Lord. Not expand, excuse me, Lord, but to illuminate the scriptures for us, Lord. That we may see you better, Lord. That we may grow more by seeing you in the words that he says, Lord. That he would be reliant on you. That in his sermon, in his passage, Lord, that we would see you more clearly. That we would grow in holiness. And together, Lord, we would praise you more because of what we learned today that it would be more clear that this truth of the scripture that I just read would be clear for us all, that we would be putting on this armor, fighting the evil one to your glory. I thank you for this wonderful opportunity, Lord, that we all have to praise you together, knowing in other places they do it in secret, that it is much more difficult. And I just want to thank you now that we have this opportunity and praise you for it, that we would not take it for granted, but rest in your love and grace. In your son, Jesus
1: Christ's name, amen. Uh, as you are preparing for the week ahead, what's, what's on your list of priorities, goals, uh, expectations? Do you, I don't know if you are, kind of are a Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening planner. Maybe you sit down with your phone or your does anybody use planners still? I don't know. But you just kind of map out some priorities for the week. I would not be surprised if even during this service of worship, someone, I'm not asking for a show of hands, has pulled out a phone or maybe scribbled on a paper some something you need to remember, something you need to plan for later in this week. Uh, I, I'm wondering as we prepare to dig into the Word this morning, um, where where is the pursuit of righteousness falling in your thinking and your planning for the week ahead? Is that on your radar? I wonder. It seems to me that it should be on our radar. Uh, it seems to me that it is on God's radar for us. It's among His priorities, uh, His goals, if I could put it that way. For us, it's a charge that he gives to us. I think we can take for ourselves the word that Paul spoke to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:11 when he said, "But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness." Pursue righteousness he says. In Romans 6 Paul says, do not present your members to sin. Your members, like your your hands and your eyes and your tongue. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I think this is more than just a matter of our priorities for the week that's ahead. Uh, As you think about what you want to be known for in life, your aspirations and your ambitions of how you would be remembered, is, is being righteous before God, being pleasing to him, having God looking at you and being delighted in the reflection of himself that he sees in your growing righteousness, is that something you're pursuing? I wonder how that priority of God lands upon you this morning. I wonder if that strikes you, even what I've just said so far, as burdensome or maybe unreasonable or maybe irrelevant to the real important problems that you have in your life or maybe threatening. As you contemplate that call to pursue righteousness, do you experience some measure of shame or despair? at how much unrighteousness you still see in your life. Or maybe cynicism, that you really can grow and pursue righteousness. Or some measure of suspicion, as if this is going to be apparently a very legalistic sermon. Or maybe just apathy. To the degree that we might experience some of those responses, I think they expose... The force with which the adversary of our souls seeks to do harm to our souls. We Christians are engaged in battle. That's been the focus of our study this fall as we've been looking at this paragraph uh, in Ephesians 6 that Jake read to us. If you have shut your Bible, if you don't have a Bible open, I would encourage you to open your Bible to Ephesians 6. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, one of those seats uh, in front of you. Uh, It's on page 979, I believe, of those Bibles. We've been looking at this call to war recognizing that we have a ruthless and malicious enemy who is scheming against us. He is scheming to lure us away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And I think we can infer that if we are called in this warfare to uh, put on righteousness I think we can infer that a part of his scheming against us is to derail our pursuit of righteousness. He might derail that pursuit in a number of ways by making it seem burdensome or unreasonable or irrelevant by arousing in you shame or despair or cynicism. But I believe that cruel and hateful enemy of ours would like to keep us away from righteousness. And yet God's word to us today is to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the little phrase where we're just moving real slowly through this paragraph. So we're looking at verse 14, the second part of verse 14, where it says, Putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Two questions that I hope to answer for you this morning. What is this breastplate of righteousness? What is it? And what does it mean to put it on? You get very, when you're just focusing on these little tiny phrases, you get very unremarkable outlines. I'm not sure what to do with this passage other than just say, what is the breastplate of righteousness and what does it mean to put it on It might not be the most remarkable outline, but it's a very important subject, I believe, if we would stand against the devil and his schemes to devour us. So what is this breastplate of righteousness? Well, uh, I said last week that as we were looking at the belt of truth, that we, we need to have in our minds, not that Paul, as he's writing this passage, not mainly that he's thinking about a Roman soldier and the attire that a Roman soldier would be wearing. But I said that, that Paul's main frame of reference wasn't the Roman soldier's garments, but actually was the prophet Isaiah. And we saw that last week from Isaiah chapter 11, and we see that again this week in chapter Isaiah 59. This image of righteousness as a breastplate is drawn from that chapter in Isaiah. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage. It may be, uh, you may, I think you would find it profitable to read through all of Isaiah 59, maybe later today or tomorrow. But Isaiah 59 describes a grim world where darkness and sin reign. The Lord's people are groaning in misery and in despair, and it's a misery and despair that is their own doing. We're told at the beginning of the chapter that their iniquities have made a separation between them. And their are God. No one on the scene seems to be able to turn things around. All are unrighteous. And we're told in Isaiah 59, 16, that the Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. So we see the Lord himself is putting on this breastplate of righteousness. And as we look at the rest of Isaiah 59. What we see is that the Lord comes with that breastplate of righteousness. He comes both in wrath and in mercy. He comes bringing justice upon his enemies. Repaying them according to their deeds. But he also comes in the form of a redeemer who pours out grace and mercy on those who confess and turn from their transgressions. And we know that this promise of God himself coming in righteousness and with saving mercy to intercede for and to redeem guilty sinners, we know that's not just the remedy for Israel's plight, but for all of us. Because we understand What God's word says of all people when it says in Romans 1 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. We don't do what's right. To be right means to be or to act as we should. And that's in relation to God because he's the one who made us. And he made us for a purpose that we would glorify him. That we would reflect his character by our trust, by our submission, by our worship of him. And we have sinned against him and we have become unrighteous before him. And therefore deserving of his wrath. Now, if you happen to be here this morning, and maybe you don't, maybe you're just sort of checking out the Christian faith, don't necessarily consider yourself to be a Christian, perhaps that, what I just said there, that very gloomy picture of humanity as being just unrighteous and deserving of God's wrath, maybe that sounds very archaic to you. Maybe that sounds very gloomy and unreasonable to you. Maybe you think of yourself perhaps as a basically good person. You, I mean, you would acknowledge, I understand, I'm not, I know I'm not perfect, but in your mind, you might not articulate it this way, but in your mind, basically you think if God had you on his side, he'd be doing okay. I can remember a time in my life where I basically thought that about myself. But you know, even criminals keep most of the laws most of the time, but they're still Criminals. And what I came to see in my own life was that before the throne of God, the God who is righteous in all his ways, the God whose very throne is one, as we were called to worship, whose very throne is one of righteousness and justice, before the throne of God, I came to see that I was not righteous before him. This, it, it really, this hit me profoundly this past week. I was doing a little bit of research there. I trust some of you, maybe many of you, are, have heard of this. There's this popular comedian. I'm not going to mention his name because I really don't want you looking at his YouTube clips. But there's a popular comedian who's been in the news recently. And uh, because of his, his opposition or his pushing back upon the, uh, the, the sort of the LGBTQ culture, and he's getting a lot of heat from the the woke, secular elites about his comedy routine. And I was just kind of curious as to what it was that he was talking about, what he was saying. So I pulled up a clip on YouTube to see what it was all was going on, and um, that, was a mis- that was a mistake. Um, I, I had to shut it off probably within 30 seconds, maybe 45 seconds, because the vulgarity and the crude, it was just so disgusting. And I was appalled. I, dis- I mean, I just shut it down. I, I, was re- I felt defiled. And then I realized, actually, just maybe a few seconds after that, there was a time, it's probably been now about 20 to 25 years, but there was a time I would have thought that was hilarious. There's a time when I talked just like that. And I was disgusted about my own Sin. And I was freshly moved at the rightness of God's anger and wrath against me in my sin. I was freshly moved by the reality. I am not basically good. Because you know what? Even we Christians, we get on living life and we kind of can't think. We know know in our doctrine. We read the the statement. We read through those 10 commandments as Jeff's leading us. And we know that in our heads. But we kind of can get the posture that we're basically not too bad. And I was freshly made aware. I'm really that bad. His assessment of me in my sin and my deservedness of his wrath seemed so right, so appropriate. And it was perfectly just to me that God's assessment would be to say, you are dead. You stink, you're wicked. You can never get to me in your own righteousness. You could never earn my favor. You've done nothing but rebel against me since the day you were born. Not only will you go to hell, but you deserve every single infinite moment of it because you're that bad in and of yourself in your sin. And that's not just his verdict on me, that's his verdict on everyone. Paul is so clear about this in Romans chapter 3. When he quotes from the Psalms, he says in Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And kids, that's true of you too. Kids, kids. I know sometimes it's hard to sit here and listen to me for so long. I want you to know I really love you being here. Even if you don't love being here, I love you being here. And I do want to talk to you a little bit every time we gather. And I want you to understand, kids, something that's really, really important about you. I don't know what you think about your life and all that you want to do. Maybe you're just only thinking about what you want to do this afternoon. Maybe you don't really think about what you want to do with your life. But one of the really important things in your life Is what you're going to do about your sin. Some people, even grown up people, they try to just hide their sin. They act like their sin isn't really a big deal. Some people try to just do a lot of good things to make up for the sins that they've committed. And I think it's great. So, I, 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 those of you that are in Promised Land right now, I know you're memorizing some Bible, you're memorizing Micah 6, and that's wonderful that you're memorizing some scripture. But you cannot memorize enough scripture to cleanse you of your sins, kids. Amen. There is nothing that you can do to get God to remove your sins. And that's something you should think about. What am I going to do about my sins? Now, we have wonderful news. That sounds very gloomy, but we have wonderful news. And that is that even though there's nothing that you can do about your sins, you can bring your sins to God. And he says he will forgive you and he will wash you clean from your sins because of Jesus. He'll do that for kids and he'll do that for adults. He'll do that for little sinners And he'll do that for big sinners. And I'm talking about your physical size when I say that because we're all big sinners. And kids, if you're not sure how you might be a big sinner, you could ask mom or dad about that later today. And I trust they will be glad to inform you of some ways. But oh, we have such good news for sinners who see their unrighteousness for those whose mouths are stopped before God's righteous judgment, those who begin to feel something of their, their poverty of spirit before a holy God and thus mourn for their sin, who hunger and thirst, as Jesus said, for righteousness, a righteousness that they know they don't have and they don't possess in themselves and cannot provide. We have good news that in Christ, God himself Put on the breastplate of righteousness to redeem from sin all who would turn to Christ in repentant faith. And Paul sets up in Romans 3, he sets up that bad news about how we're all guilty and unrighteousness. But then he says at the end of Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Oh, this is not our own doing. He saved us, Titus chapter 3, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of our Bible reading or our Bible memorization or our church attendance or the money that we've put in on the offering plate or anything else. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified, that means being counted righteous. By his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, this is the good news that brings us together every Lord's Day. On the cross, God the Father tore off Jesus' righteous standing before him. And treated Jesus as if he were the guilty one. And he counted Jesus to be blackened with our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, all the filthy thoughts and all the vulgar words and the vile actions that you and I have committed in the past or will commit in the future. And he put all of that upon his perfectly innocent son, Jesus, and not only did he do that, but he actually then, when we believe upon Christ, he credits to our account all the times when Jesus faced similar temptations and he stood firm. And that perfect robe of righteousness that Jesus wore is given to his broken and contrite and believing people. For our sake, 2 Corinthians five twenty one. for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when you're tempted to doubt it, when you're mindful of how, of how fickle, how up and down your performance is, he has testified that it is true and that it is so for all of you believing because he raised Jesus from the dead. Praise God, our assurance is not in our own fickle performance, but in the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised, Romans 4.25 says, for our justification. Oh, if you've not put your faith in Christ, if you've not put your faith in Christ, come to him today. It's amazing sometimes, I, you know, the, the, the rap on us from people who don't believe is that we're that holier-than-thou type of people. As if you're here and your perception of Christians is that we're all holier-than-thou, could I just suggest to you that maybe actually you're the one who is holier-than-thou? Because we're the ones who come and say, I'm guilty, I'm damnable, I'm wrong, I need a savior. And yet it's the... It's the unbeliever who seems to think they are holier than us because they don't think they need to repent of their sin and they don't think they need a savior. But if you, if you're here this morning and you're beginning to see I've not lived my life for God's purpose, I've not lived my life as I should according to God, maybe in your own eyes, maybe in a culture's eyes, you're doing fine, but you will not give an account to the culture. You will give an account to God for your life. And if you begin to see some of that, he has provided for you an all-sufficient sacrifice that you might be cleansed and that you might be counted righteous before him. A righteousness that is enough to defend us forever against the wrath of God and all the accusations of the devil. Praise God. In this warfare against the devil, Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Without Jesus, the righteous one, there is no breastplate. We have no protection from the wrath of God and from the accusations of the devil. But, praise God, John says, 1 John 2, 1, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So put on the breastplate of righteousness. Remember the gospel, remember your unrighteousness, remember what you deserve before God's righteous throne and the righteousness that he has provided for you in his perfectly spotless son. That's part of what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness, is to remember the breastplate that Jesus himself wore on our behalf. That's really important. That's really precious. That's why we sing songs about it as we have throughout the service this morning. But I think actually when Paul says here in Ephesians 6, 14, put on the breastplate of righteousness, I think he's actually meaning something a little bit different than that. Now that's what I just said is really important. It's really foundational and it's really essential in our waging war against the devil, which is why I just took the time that I did to make sure that that was on our radar, that that was in our thinking as we come to this exhortation. But I think when Paul says put on the breastplate of righteousness. I, I don't think he's just saying, remember the righteousness that God has provided for you in Christ and rest in it. I don't think he's just saying that. And the reason why I don't think he's just saying that is I just did a study of this word. It's one Greek word put on. And I noticed that, especially in Paul's writings Every time it's used, this word put on is there as a command, put on something, put, on, put this on. It's not talking about believing that God has declared you righteous, which is true, but it's talking about a lived out righteousness. It's talking about a way of life, of, of conduct that is becoming of and reflective of the righteous status that we have obtained through our faith in Jesus. I'm looking at you, and you, it seems like you would want me to tell you an, an example of that. Good, I'm glad you're concerned for that, because I have three of them for you. Romans thir- thirteen twelve. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness, and put on and put on the armor of light. So putting on the armor of light is contrasted with casting off the works of the darkness. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk. What does it mean to put on the armor of light? Let us walk properly. That's talking about our lives. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Not living that way, but rather than living that way, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or Colossians 3.12, he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You see, he says, you, you're chosen. You've been chosen by God. You've been made holy in Christ. You are beloved. So put on character, put on conduct that is becoming of your status. Put on compassion and kindness and humility. Oh, we see it here in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Just turn a page or two back in your Bibles if it's open. In Ephesians 4.22, he says of those who learned Christ and were, were taught To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying, put on this new self that you have. That's being renewed. That's being created created in the likeness of the true, righteous, holy God. Put on character. Put on a life that is becoming of that. And that, too, is worthy of our singing. So we sing, praise God, you're my one defense, my righteousness. Praise God, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. But we also sing, grace paid for my sins and brought me to life. Grace clothes me with power to do what is right. That is the grace of God, that we might be empowered to do right things, to live righteously before God and man. Paul says in Titus chapter two, the grace of God has appeared to all bringing salvation, training us To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives, upright lives, righteous lives and godly lives in the present age. And I think that's really what Paul's after at here in Ephesians six fourteen. armor up children of God armor up saints by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, by putting on that new self, by putting on Christ. That is that, that new identity that we have in him, that new self, which has been created and is being renewed into the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. When we, when we do that, we're walking out our restored identity as image bearers of God's righteousness. And if you, if you wonder, what does that look like? What does like, what, what that life look like? It's right there in Ephesians 4. And I will not, in the interest of time, go through it all. But if you just look there at Ephesians 4, verse 24, you see how it says to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then you see there in verse 25, the word is therefore. That means he's drawing a conclusion. You're called to put on the new self in true righteousness and holiness. And now he's going to tell you what all that looks like. So if you want to think about this righteous life that you're to put on, in your warfare against the devil, you just can start reading in verse 25 and you can just actually go clear through the end of the book, I think. But especially maybe through verse 21 of Ephesians 5. It's a life of honesty. I mean, I'm not gonna go through it, but I'm just gonna tell you some traits. It's a life of honesty and a life of graciousness, putting away anger. He says right there, when you give, when you give anger, when you are getting angry, you are right on Satan's doorstep. He says, in your anger, do not sin, which means you're getting real close. In your anger, be very careful about sin because the de- anger is the devil's breeding ground. The anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God, James 1.20. Instead, be gentle, be kind, be forgiving, be patient with one another. A life of graciousness, a life of integrity, a life that is productive and generous, a life that's helpful, a life that's kind, a life that's loving, a life that's pure, a a life that's thankful. Again, you could spend hours and hours in that in that part of Ephesians. It's a battle. That's what that's a whole passage. It's about war. I understand it's a battle. The spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. But this is our calling in Christ to imitate God, to be imitators of God, as it says there in Ephesians 5, 1, to be imitators of God in his role of divine warrior by waging war against the devil with the armory of a righteous life. And that's a good thing. That's a happy way to live. That's why we just put that little refrain in there that we do not sing very often. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Beloved, I understand that obey is a four letter word, but it is not that kind of a four letter word. It's the happy way. The psalmist says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. It's the happy way. To live in righteousness because our God is good and his commandments are not burdensome. And therefore, we pursue this happy way by helping one another to live out this restored identity in Christ. We pursue righteousness together as we teach and urge and encourage and admonish one another unto this life of true righteousness and holiness. This, this is one of the reasons why we submit ourselves and we join a local church. This is one of the reasons why we don't just attend services but we actually commit to joining a church so that we have this mutual accountability of having publicly identified with Jesus and with a particular group of people who are going to love us and exhort us and encourage us to that righteousness and be willing if needed is there to call us back to the path when we veer from it. One of the implications of us pursuing righteousness together is that we are willing to call one another out for our sin. That's wisdom from God. Listen to Proverbs 9 verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. If we would live righteous lives, standing firm against the devil's schemes, we need that kind of ministry. We all need that kind of ministry. So make sure that you are are building relationships with other members of the church so that you can know them and so that they can know you. Righteousness grows in an environment of conversational humility and honesty. Uh, We're working to cultivate that even as we take time to publicly confess sin like that. Like if you actually believe what we just said aloud a few minutes ago, You you just confessed to be a guilty lawbreaker before God. And you did that around 150 or whatever it is, number of people here. Like if you actually believe that, that cultivates an environment of transparency. I have broken the Ten Commandments this week. You can know that about me. I need not hide that from you. I can be real with you. We try to cultivate that by having a time in which we confess sin publicly every week, but we have to cultivate that in our lives personally. Work to be the kind of person that's easy to correct. Ask somebody this week. Am I easy to correct? There's a verse in Galatians that just it just gets me every time I, I read it. In Galatians 4 16, Paul says, you know, Galatians, it's a testy letter he's very concerned about the Galatians and he speaks sharply to them. And there's this point in Galatians 4, it's in verse 16 where he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Pray to God that that would never be said to you or about you. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Work to be the kind of person who's easy to correct. You know how you do that work? You plant yourself right here, symbolically speaking. I'm not saying you need to run up here. That's how you pursue that. You say, what, I have to work? Work to see what that means. If you're listening on a recording, I'm pointing to a cross. Because if you're not easy to correct, your, your friends and your family members and your brothers and sisters in Christ, they will quickly learn that correcting you is a futile and even a dangerous exercise, and they'll just stop. And you know what? That'll make you feel really comfortable, and it'll make you very vulnerable to the devil's attacks against you. I could go on here, but I think you get the picture. We need each other. The, the body, when we do this, when we're giving and receiving this kind of correction when we commit to living in that way the body will be working as it should with each part building itself up in love by speaking the truth in love and little by little from one degree of glory to another our congregation will begin to image forth we are already i don't mean to say begin but we will more and more Image forth the holy and righteous character of the God who has so graciously and so generously, powerfully rescued us from unrighteousness, and who has promised to crown us with righteousness when that work is complete. Listen, listen, listen to this from Second Timothy four as I conclude. This is an amazing word, brothers and sisters. It's not in my notes. Thank you to a dear member who sent it to me yesterday. Here's Paul at the end of his life. Is this your hope too? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A crown of righteousness is our destiny. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And I, I kind of want to just say, amen, I love you, brothers and sisters, let's pray right there, but I do want to say one more thing to those of you that are here, and you want that to be true, you, that's, it's kind of your hope, but you are a very tender-hearted soul. There's some of you that are here, and I know you need to hear a word like this. You've heard all of this, and yet you live with fear. And you live with despair and you live with a a constant lamenting the lack of righteousness that you see in your lives. And so I do want to encourage you with this word from Charles Spurgeon. In a sermon on on 2 Corinthians 5.10, which talks about us all appearing before the judgment seat of God, Spurgeon said this, and it may be what some of you are saying, but if you are saying... Oh, I am afraid I have not the evidence that will stand me in good stead at the last. Yet, if all the while you've been feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and doing all you can for Christ, I would tell you not to be afraid. The Master will find witnesses to say, That man relieved me when I was in poverty. He knew I was one of Christ's and he came and helped me. And another will come and say, Perhaps it will be an angel. I saw him when he was alone in his chamber and heard him pray for his enemies. And the Lord will say, I read his heart when I saw how he put up with rebuke and slander and persecution and would not make any answer for my sake. He did it all as evidence that my grace was in his heart. You will not have to fetch up the witnesses. The judge will call them for he knows all about your case. And as he calls up the witnesses, you will be surprised to find how even the ungodly will be obliged to consent to the just salvation of the righteous. Oh, how the secret deeds and the true heart sincerity of the righteous, when thus unveiled, will make devils bite their tongues in wrath to think that there was so much of grace given to the sons of men with which to defeat persecution, to overcome temptation, and to follow on in obedience to the Lord. On that day, beloved, for the first time, with full clarity and vividness, we will see just how much the blood of Christ covered. And just how active the grace of God really was. And just how much the spirit of God caused us to obey. And just how generous our God is who rewards those who pursue the righteousness that he has so graciously provided for us in Christ. And so until that day, beloved, press on. And stand firm and put on the breastplate of righteousness as you do battle with the devil in the strength that God supplies. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, thank you for your righteousness. In and of ourselves, we are, we are weak, and we are helpless, we're foolish, we're disobedient, we're deceived and enslaved in and of ourselves. But you have opened our eyes. And we, we need not, we dare not trust in the sweetest frame. Oh, but we wholly lean upon Jesus' name. What a blessed assurance. What a blessed hope. Grant us to rest more and more in the all-sufficient righteousness of Christ provided for us and grant us a more earnest experience of our pursuing righteousness and reflecting your righteous character in all our conduct. Be pleased to work that in us for your sake and through Christ our savior, amen.